to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11 today as we continue our series of Romans. But before we actually get into Romans chapter 11, who got rid of their tract last week? All right, we've got a, a few hands. Praise God for that. There are more tracks in the back, and there are more days left in your life to get rid of that tract. Amen? So, I really want to challenge you to, to get rid of that tract. Even take baby steps. All right? I know I laid it on you last week with, with really get rid of it, have a conversation, but take baby steps. So, you go to a, 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 a diner, leave it on the table. You're at a park, leave it on the bench. You know, uh, then you have a conversation with somebody, you have it in your pocket, you say, oh, before I leave, let me give you this tract. This is, um, this is, a, tells you about Jesus, you know, do you have any spiritual beliefs? And if you, if you feel led, come to our church, write the name of the church on the back, the address, and, and this is how you can bring yourself into cooperation with the kingdom. So we've talked a lot about, in the past half year, we've talked a lot about killing some by the Holy Spirit, reading the Word of God, prayer, fellowship in the local church, stewarding your resources for the glory of God. But now, this is the next and, uh, I would say, the final thing that we can do to bring ourselves into cooperation with the divine order, which is being a vessel for him to proclaim his life-giving message to the world. Amen? So, however you can be of use to the Lord, be of use to the Lord. And get rid of that track, there are more in the back as well, if you need some more. All right. Um, so, last week we left off with that idea that the reason you need to get rid of this tract is because how are they going to hear without somebody preaching, right? And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? So people need to hear the good news in order to respond to it. So that, that one phrase that's accredited to Frank, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, which is um, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, is not a valid uh, maxim for, the, for Christian evangelism because you need to use words to proclaim the message that Christ is Lord of the universe, that he has died an atoning death for your sins, that he is the way to and the revealer of God, Those, that, takes, that takes words and language, and he has sent out ambassadors, um, and we implore people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God through the message of the gospel. So it needs to be sent out. Now, let's now focus back 2,000 years ago, in, on redemptive history now. So is the problem with Israel that they haven't heard the gospel at this point? Christ died, the church is, is expanding, the kingdom is expanding. Is the problem with Jews at this point that they haven't heard the gospel? No, it's not that they haven't heard the gospel. They have heard the gospel. And Paul says that in, in verse 18 of chapter 10. Their voice, the gospel voice, has gone out through all the earth, and their voice to the ends of the world. Did they not understand the gospel? Of course they understood the gospel. It's been preached to them. In fact, the gospel is the message about their Messiah. 
So what is the problem with Israel? The problem with Israel at this point in salvation history, in redemptive history, is that they are a disobedient and contrary people. Verse 21 of chapter 10. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, with that in mind, the question is, has God rejected Israel, Jewish people, in light of Christ? So read with me verses 1 through 12 as we look at this fine point in redemptive history. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, and they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they would not see, and ears that they would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Amen. So, the question here that the Apostle Paul is addressing is, has God rejected Israel? Has God rejected Israel because Israel has rejected him? Now, the issue that we're going to look at, the larger issue that we're looking at through this specific historical situation is the faithfulness of God. Is God faithful to his prom promises? Because God had covenanted with the Jews in the past, and now the question on everyone's lips is, well, the Jews aren't coming to faith in their Messiah, and the Gentiles are coming in, so has God rejected his people who are rejecting him? In, verse, in chapter 9, we saw a cosmic answer to that question. No, the word of God has not failed. And, God, and Paul is letting us in on a mystery here that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Chapter 9, verse 6. So you are not God's people simply because you are ethnically Jewish. Now that was, that was a shock. 
You are not saved. You are not within God's gracious provision simply because you align yourself with the, with the law and it's sort of a boundary marker for your life and your community. You are not part of God's people simply because you follow the law or are ethnically or Jewish or a part of the Jewish community. It's those who have faith in Christ. And certainly we saw some hard things that uh, those who have faith in Christ have faith in Christ on God's initiative. Um, here, we're coming at it from a lower perspective. And those who have faith in Christ um, are not ethnically Jewish. Here is the point again. They're not, it's not like they're ethnically Jewish, those who have faith in Christ. Um, those who have faith in Christ do so because they believe in him. So rather than preach my whole sermon in the introduction, let's, let's get into the specifics here. Um, has God rejected his people? Um, look with me in verse 1 and 2. So the question, has God rejected Jewish people entirely? I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you could be forgiven. You could be forgiven after reading verse 21 of chapter 10, thinking that God, yeah. So the gospel means that Christ came and now the Jewish people are, are done for, they're, they're done for, they're treated like everyone else in every single way, and God has rejected um, all his covenant promises to them and fulfilled them now in Christ, and that's the end of the story. And I think there's something deeper going on here. Paul says, no, he has not rejected his people. And he uses himself, a thoroughly Jewish man, as proof that he has not rejected the Jews. He's a descendant of Abraham, and he's from the tribe of Benjamin. So obviously, it's not like it's not like God has rejected Jewish people lock, stock, and barrel because they've rejected him as a nation, right? We can, get, we can gather that from verse 1. He says he has not rejected his people, and then he adds to that assertion by saying his people whom he foreknew. Now, you remember that term from a few chapters again, foreknew? To foreknow means something more than know about. In the Bible, it means to have regard for, to have unique and deep affection for previously. So when in Amos, God says to Israel, you only have I known from all the families of the earth. He's not saying he doesn't know about any other nations. He's saying he has an intimate relationship and regard for Israel in a way that he did not have. For the other nations. When he says to Jeremiah, before I, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He means something more than I knew about your birth. He means he had regard and affection for Jeremiah and a plan for his life before he was even born. So to foreknow in the Hebrew idiom is something like for love. It means to have regard beforehand. So, no, God has not rejected his people, Paul is saying. I'm a Jew, and I'm a Christian, 
and he foreknew them. He had regard for them before, intimating that God is not the type of God who is going to have regard for somebody and then reject them outright. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew, who he he had intimate regard for. So although you don't enter God's favor by being Jewish automatically, yet just because you're Jewish doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. He is keeping his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember the first person after the Tower of Babel debacle, God calls Abraham. He says, through your family, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And Isaac is born. And Isaac, um, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has Joseph, and Joseph goes into Egypt. And from Joseph's lineage um, and Jacob's lineage, the people of Israel grow, and then God releases Israel from slavery in Egypt. So it's through this specific family, ethnic, biological family, that God has been working throughout the Old Testament, right? God has been working through a family who become a nation, and that from one man. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. He says to Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession." out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. Now, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples, but it was because that the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So what is the reason that God is working through Israel at this point in Deuteronomy? Number one, he loves them, and he is keeping the oath that he swore to their fathers, their biological forefathers. Even in verse 28 of this chapter we're looking at, in verse 28 we see that ethnically Jewish people are still uniquely beloved by God. As regards to the gospel, so with regards to the gospel that's being preached now, Paul says, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So do you see that? It seems that God has not given up on ethnically Jewish people. So, all the promises of Christ are, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. Amen? And what we've been saying so far does not connote that God is going to reestablish old covenant practices in Israel. It does not mean that God promised to build a renewed temple in Israel. It does not mean that he's go, the sacrifices are going to happen in Israel again. And those are the promises that, um, that he's trying to get to happen again with Israel. No. He is promising that he has not rejected ethnically Jewish people because he made a promise to their forefathers. So Paul gives some proof for this now um, in verses 3 to 5. Rather than allow Israel to completely abandon God and reject their Messiah, i.e. Christ, 
God has preserved a remnant of the Jews. And he refers to a situation in 1 Kings 19 when Elijah felt like he was the only faithful person left when he was being persecuted by Jewish kings and queens who had rejected God and were worshiping Baal. He says, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, first of all, I think, I think there's a lot of Christians today who have an Elijah complex in America because we feel like we're the only ones left and the world is going down. And it's true. There's this true. I mean, America is thoroughly pagan and becoming more pagan every day. Amen? However, it's not as if God, it's not as if um, the, the destruction of America, the spiritual degradation of America is going to harm God's plans. Is he not sovereign? Is he not powerful? Is he not mighty? It's, it's America who has rejected God. Right? And so this is not going to disrupt God's plans. And from what I understand, Christianity is growing in the other nations. And even if it wasn't, do we not have a mighty God who can keep just a few, just a remnant and then take over the earth with that remnant if he chose? Christianity started with one person, after all, and then 12 disciples, and then people praying in an upper room. And that spread to all the earth, right? God is sovereign, and so we are, we're, don't have an Elijah complex where you feel like we're the only ones left and everything is crumbling down. I don't care what laws they pass. I don't care if they don't allow us to meet. It, it, it does not matter. God will win in the end. Amen. So, Paul's referring to a time in Elijah's day when Israel had followed false gods. And he felt like he was the only one left. And he says, and, and God said to, to Elijah, listen, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Almost a rebuke of Elijah. So because of his promises to the patriarchs, ethnic, biological patriarchs, God is not allowed their descendants, their progeny, to entirely abandon him. Rather, he's chosen a remnant of believing Jews, and he has done, through, done so through the instrument of grace. He hasn't, he hasn't saved them all because they're ethnically Jews. He has saved some by grace because he had promised never to reject this biological people. This leads us to verse 6, where Paul says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So if, it is by, if God saves people by the instrument of grace, not by works, 
Paul is saying, then it's it's nothing it's nothing that a Jew can do. It's no law keeping. Now we've been down this path before, but it's no law abiding that is going to bring you in to God's favor. Paul is hi- highlighting the current problem with Jews at this point in salvation history. What did they look to as a means of righteousness? They looked to the law. In chapter 3, verse 20. In chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. If you jump down to 27, he continues that thought and he says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. By a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, that is Jewish people by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. So, it is not by law that God is keeping promises to people. It is not by their self-righteousness either. It is by grace through faith. By grace through faith. So, God does not choose people by their adherence to the law, but by faith. And this was a shock to Jews. But they were essentially rejecting God by, by, by making the law a, a means of self-righteousness. And again, I know we've been down that path before, but that's very important to understand that we don't approach God based on taking our self-righteousness and offering it to God and saying, look, look how good I've done. You only ever approach God with unworthiness. And you approach him understanding that you need the grace that he gives, which you reach out and grab with the empty hands of faith. So understand that Paul's opposing the use of the law when he talks about not by works, but by grace. That's very important because many ha- there's kind of a false narrative in a lot of a lot of sections of Christianity today, which sees any sort of effort in the Christian life as legalism. And we're talking about this in Bible study on Wednesday. As if, as if real Christianity is about non-effort. And anytime you put effort into your piety or holiness in the Christian life, well, then that's just not grace. And that is such a false conclusion based on these passages. Paul is saying... You don't, you don't enter God's kingdom by your works. But he's not saying that you don't put effort into the Christian life, that you don't strive for holiness. Paul is talking about how one enters the kingdom of God, how one enters Christ. And that's faith that receives grace. That's how you enter Christ. But how you abide in Christ is to be mastered by that grace. Let me give you two passages that I've told you many times before. But the Christian life is, being, is about being mastered by grace. In Titus 2, 11 through 12, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace saves you, but it also trains you, right? Because grace means that you're united with Christ by the Holy Spirit who lives in you. So the Christian life is about being trained by the grace that God gives you. Another passage is Acts 13.43. Paul's preaching to Jews in Antioch. And it says, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So you enter the kingdom through grace, you continue in the kingdom through grace, and you're empowered in the kingdom life by grace, right? It is by grace through faith all the way through. But that doesn't mean there's no effort. Grace is not opposed to effort, as, as Dallas Wood said, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. And God never said, do not act out of holiness. So please don't get that confused and think that verse 6 is, kind. Of, don't write that on the doorpost of your house and say, well, listen, the Christian life is just about chilling out and not, not doing anything for the kingdom. It's just about receiving. No, once you receive grace, be trained by it. Once you receive grace, continue in it. So that's how one becomes righteous, by the grace of God, not by works of the law. Now, going deeper into theology, who is it that received the righteousness of God? In verse 7, what then? Israel, who relied on works of the law, failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. First, Israel sought righteousness, but did not obtain it. Why? Let's turn to nine, chapter 9, verse 31. In chapter 9, verse 31, Paul says, But Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith but as it if as if it were based on works so the reason israel did not obtain what it was seeking is because they did not pursue it by faith and god will not have people who do not trust him in his kingdom it's the righteous who will live by faith paul says then who did obtain who did obtain the righteousness of god I'm not saying it. Paul's saying it. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Who obtained it? The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. Again, this is not an easy doctrine. And verse, chapters 9 through 11 is not an easy section of Scripture. Um, there are two ways people understand the elect. And we're rehearsing old territory, but I want to bring this out again because I want to tell, tell you that this is very a very um, complex doctrine and perhaps difficult to receive. Um, some people say, well, it's those who respond to grace. And clearly that's true. 
The elect are those who respond to grace, amen? You, you're not elect if you don't respond to God's grace, that's for sure. However, at this point in my spiritual journey, I, and I've tried many times to unconvince myself of this, but I cannot unconvince myself that the elect exist at the initiative of God. He says in verse 4, Paul uses that example. But what does God's reply to him? I have kept for myself. It shows divine initiative, right? It shows that God is the one who kept for himself. Um, verse 5, the elect obtained it. That word just can mean chosen. That's exactly the same word here um, in verse 7. Elect or chosen. The remnant is chosen by grace, right? So you see where I'm coming from. It's, it seems that God has the initiative in the existence of the elect. One commentator, Cranfield, says, Paul uses the same term, elect, and places special emphasis on the action of God as that which is altogether determinative for the existence of the elect. So, I, again, I say, at this point in my discipleship, I cannot read the Bible honestly without seeing that there are some who are elect by God. Paul says um, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not in word only, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So, Paul says, your conversion tells me that God has chosen you, the initiative of God. Acts 13, 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So, I see great, great evidence in Scripture for the elect. The logical question now is, the problem is when we say this, people think, so God just arbitrarily chooses people then. This is just a random process where God said you and you and not you and not you. And that, that therein lies the problem. That is precisely what I don't think election means. God is free, but he is not arbitrary. And that, and I don't, I'm not, don't, don't get excited because I'm not going to give you the answer today because I don't know the answer. But I don't think God is an arbitrary God, just randomly selecting people. That's not what election means. And that's kind of what gets people worked up about this. So it's not random. There are three ways, three solutions you can have to the elect situation. Number one, you can say, it's an arbitrary choice of God, which I just said I don't think is a good way to think about it. It can't, it, I don't think God is an arbitrary God. He's a God of order and life and logic and reason. You could say there's some inscrutable purpose that we just don't know about that determines the existence of the elect, right? 
Perhaps it's just inscrutable. We cannot figure it out. Uh, it, I think it was um, Luther or Augustine uh, is credited for saying, um, well, the person answers, what was God doing before the creation of the world? And Luther says he was creating hell for people who asked those kinds of questions. <laughs> so maybe this is one of those kinds of questions where we just don't have an answer. Or maybe, or maybe there is a theory that we can put forward that we can't say is gospel truth, but we can provide perhaps coherence and logic to the existence of elect. And why I think the third option is reasonable is because God does talk about their being elect. I see that. But he also talks about in Scripture that he is not willing that any should perish and all should reach repentance. Now, the project of the theologian is how you understand those things together. Thus, we have systematic theology. That being a commercial for this September, when we get into systematic theology, basic theology, um, we're gonna, I'm going to rule out some courses on God and Revelation, on Christ, the Holy Spirit, and salvation, the Christian life, the church, and the last things. And so I really encourage you to come out and, and get, uh, get your mind cleared about the Christian life. All right, And sometimes systematic theology doesn't give you the answer, but it gives you options and buckets to place these very confusing thoughts in it. It clears your head. And when I have a clear head, I don't know about you, when I have a clear head, at least understanding some reasonable options on something, I feel like I have a breath of fresh air. I feel like I'm not under pressure cooker with these things. So I encourage you to come out as we work through these things humbly, letting the Bible speak to us authoritatively. Amen? All right. Now, let's get back to difficult things. He not only says that the elect obtained it, salvation, the righteousness of God, he also says that the rest were hardened. As it is written, now Paul's quoting some Old Testament passages here. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. You know that phrase? He's, he's in a drunken stupor, staggering, just acting without control of limbs or body. God gave that to them, Paul is saying. And that's what the prophets are saying. Eyes that they would not see and ears that they would not hear down to this very day. So God gave them that spirit of stupor. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. So, you know, sometimes when we have dinner, sometimes Nydia says, Eric, set the table. So I'll, I'll set the table. Sometimes I'll try to set it real nice. I'll have cups and I'll, I'll, I'll fold the napkin. This is not often. And then I'll put the forks out, the plates out. And so I've set the table. It's really nice. And I'm basing everything on that, that table setting. I'm about to eat the meal based on the table I've set. David is saying, let everything that they're basing their lives on become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs 
forever. Woof. Man, that's tough. Now, why did God do that? And what does hardening mean? We've been down this path before a few weeks ago. To harden means that God takes rebellious people and locks them in to that rebellion and secures them in their unrepentance and stubbornness and leaves them and gives them over to the trajectory of their rejection of God. Hence, America. Now, I am glad to be an American. I know this is July 4th, and I'm bashing America a lot. I, I am so glad that we have freedom to worship God. And I am so thankful for the men and the women who gave their lives bravely. But at this point, there are many who are, who are rejecting the Lord. And one of, the, one of the marks of their rejection is... It, it simply is in Romans 1. I say this with all the love I have, but it is homosexuality. That is a sign that God has given people over in Romans 1 to their own sinfulness. So if that, if that offends you, I do want to be offensive if that offends you, but I don't want to be offensive because I'm being, because of the way I'm being. I want to be offensive because that's the way things are. That's the way reality is, and that's the way, that's what God says. Um, that doesn't mean we don't love you. I still want to love and serve our gay neighbors, but it does mean that we, that we, we are bound by the truth of God's word, and we will humbly follow it, and, um, and I see in the Bible that homosexuality is the LGBTQ movement, which is dominant it's a dominant force in America today. I've learned the Fortune 500, 500 companies, the top companies in the world, every single one of them has a 100% rating by the LGBTQ community. So every single one of them has bowed the knee to Baal. And the thing is, it's very dangerous because that movement casts itself in as if it were a rejected minority and as if it were being persecuted but it is the most dominant force in our country it is you can and if you if you dare cross it then they'll shut you down i mean the little sisters of the poor were shut down because of them so what does that mean does that mean we take up arms and show the homosexuality, the, the LGBTQ community, community, how bad they are? No. The way you win wars as a Christian is through humility and love and truth. Amen? So it might make you angry. It might kind of get you riled up. But that is not the way you win battles. You win battles by turning the other cheek and wanting the best for that person who persecutes you. Pray for those who persecute you. All right. So hardening. God hands people over to their stubbornness and rebellion. He fixes people at the point of their rebellion. Now, we see two things from verse 7 and 
the, those Old Testament passages, we see that the elect obtain salvation, who I don't think is just an arbitrarily chosen minority, but nevertheless, it is the elect exists on the initiative of God. The elect obtain salvation, and the rest were hardened. So, that you, so there you see the two poles of salvation. There's the elect and the hardened. Now, my question for you is this. You tell me. Not out loud, but just answer my question. You tell me. I'm not, I'm not even going to teach this next section for a second. My question to you is... Is the, so who are the people that are hardened? There are people that are hardened in verse 7. It's the people, it's the Jews, right? The Jews who have, um, who are pursuing a law of righteousness. They were hardened, and only elect obtained it. So my question to you is this. Does Paul think that the hardening is unalterable? Read verse 11. Just quietly by yourself, and you tell me. And now, once you're done with verse 11, I want you to read verses 23 and 24 for a minute. Okay. Let me just comment on this. So the hardening. Usually we think of hardening as an unalterable thing. He does say he's hardened Israel, but he says in verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is a, by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree. So, it seems to me that those people who were hardened, the Jews, can be grafted back in if they do not continue in their unbelief. Now, in verse 11, Paul asks that question. So, that, did they stumble that they might fall? Did they, did, did they stumble so that they would fall unalterably, and, and just fall into damnation. No, Paul says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So, in other words, their, their rejection of Christ plays a positive role in salvation history. This is the wisdom of God, that the Jews rejection of God, of Christ, actually plays a positive role in the history of salvation by opening up salvation to the Gentiles. And now salvation is open to the Gentiles because God's people have rejected it. And that Gentiles are coming into the kingdom and believing in the Jewish Messiah. Now, what should that make Jews do? It should make them jealous. Has given to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Because Christ was the Jewish Messiah. 
He was the promise of their inheritance that the Greeks and the Gentiles are receiving. And Paul's hope is to make Israel jealous through Gentiles receiving the benefits of their inheritance. So, it does not seem to me that Paul thinks that the Jewish people's hardening is unalterable, but it is meaningful in salvation history. That is the wisdom of God, because even though, biologically speaking, biologically speaking, God said to Abraham, through your seed, I will bless all the nations of the earth. And what did Israel constantly do? Reject God. They did what was good in their sight. They rejected God. And here they're rejecting God with disobedient and contrary people. And it's almost as if God said, no, you will be a blessing through all the nations of the earth, even if I use your rejection of me to be the instrument of that blessing. My will will be done in you. Spiritually speaking, Christ, Christ is the one who came as the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. It is through the seed, the one seed, that God is blessing all the nations of the earth, Christ. But biologically speaking, the disobedience and the rejection of God from Israel at this point in salvation history also is a means that God is using to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus, the wisdom of God in salvation history. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. So, again, back to the Elijah complex. God's will will be done. Even if it is at the rejection of, of him. Even when brothers do things for evil, God repurposes them for good. So, really quick, a few things I want you to take from this passage. Um, number one, I want you to understand the character of God. You are presented with a God who is faithful to his promises. And God is not rejecting ethnic Jewish people because he promised the patriarchs. He covenanted with their descendants. That does not mean, as it has been often misunderstood, that God is going to re-establish temple worship in Jerusalem and sacrifices. You don't see that in this passage. It means that God wants Israel to be saved and come to their Messiah. That's Paul's desire. In chapter 10, brother, it is my heart's desire and prayer to them that they may be saved. That is, that they may come to Christ. Not that they might reestablish old covenant practices and go back to the law and be severed from Christ. Nevertheless, we do see the character of God. And we know that in Christ, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Amen? So now as Christians, we see this is the kind of God we worship. A God who says yes to his promises and has done so specifically through Jesus Christ. So I want you to develop a practice of relying on blood-bought promises of God in Scripture. 
even Old Testament promises, because all the promises of God find their yes in him. That doesn't mean you can, you're free to misinterpret things, but it does mean that there, if there is a promise of God in the scripture, it finds its yes in Jesus Christ. Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you. I want you to bank on that promise. That Christianity is not just about ethics. It is about the promises of Christ, a kingdom to be inherited, a place to be had. Christ said, when this gospel is preached throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. That's a promise. And that simulates faithfulness and evangelism. So develop a habit seeing that we have a God who has, who makes and keeps promises. I want you to develop a habit of cherishing those promises, speaking them to yourself, praying them, and relying on those promises in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of sicknesses, all things are possible with God. So if you have a family member who is sick, physically struggling, you can trust Christ for deliverance. If you have a family member who is not come, coming to Christ, you can trust that God's power can bring someone to his knees in an instant and that he can work through prayer. And that, these, are, that's, these are the reasons we need to have a prayer meeting because prayer in God's ordained plan is the means through which God works. It is a means through which God works. That God has set up prayer in such a way that things will happen that will, would not have happened if we would not have prayed. That's why I love what John Piper says, that God takes prayer and he folds it into his causality in the wisdom of God. All right. That's the passage um, today. So we see a faithful God who keeps his promises even to ethnic Israel. All right. Next week, we'll go deeper into this, um, this phenomenon about the rejection of God by Israel and the opening up of salvation to the Gentiles. Let's close in a word of prayer.